Hello, you are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. As always, we have an exciting show for you this month. I will start a discussion on uh, origins of life research. Hannah will tell us about global circulation models, and Hugh discovers the most recent exoplanet news. But first, let's meet our exocasters. So my name is Andrew Rushby, uh, and I study planetary habitability and the early climate of the Earth from NASA's Ames Research Center in Mountain View, California. I'm Hugh Osborne, and I study, well, I work on the Plato Transiting Planets mission from the Laboratoire d'Astrophysique de Marseille in France. Uh, and I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I use the Hubble Space Telescope to study what makes up the atmospheres of mostly giant exoplanets, and I'm currently a research fellow at the University of Exeter in England. Kicking things off this month with the first of a two-part segment, Andrew's going to introduce the origins of life studies and talk a little about the history and scope of it all. Thanks, Hannah. So, the origin of life on Earth, the, the start of it all. Um, there are fewer, I guess, more contentious or controversial questions uh, in science. And it's also uh, an issue that I think traditionally lays out the, the disparity between science and you know, religion and humanities, much more than, for example, the stuff that we normally deal with, you know, the search for exoplanets. Um, so as much as I'd like to get into a philosophical debate about what life is, or I guess as its philosophy, um, why life is, uh, that would take several other uh, episodes of probably a very different podcast. So I think we have to scale it down, focus focus in on uh, on the science. And as this is Exocast and our perspective is pretty cosmic, we're going to stick to the origins of life and astrobiology. So the scientific search for the genesis uh, of life on this planet and any attempts to reconcile it with the possibility of life on habitable worlds in the galaxy, including those in our solar system and and further away. So even so, the amount of, of pure science content related to this area would probably take a, another whole podcast series, but we don't have that amount of time. So as Hannah mentioned, this is going to be a two-part segment. Um, this time I'll try my best to introduce the concept and talk a little bit about its history. And then in an episode's time, I will try and maybe provide some insights into the current state of the field, you know, what people are doing um, to, to move things along and how it's changed from experiments in the past. Uh, and then, you know, what's going to happen uh, in the future, as best I can tell. So I will start by saying that right now there is no currently accepted model for how life came about uh, on Earth. Uh, while there's, there's confidence in several areas of, of the problem, there remains no tangible consensus among scientists in the field for a single universal theory of, of life's beginning. Um, so we'll start with a you know, relatively controversial statement. But, um, the basics, however, as it stands, is that life on this planet began in a in a window somewhere between 4.1 and 3.7 billion years ago uh, in the Archean, when the Earth was a very different place. The sun was dim and the atmosphere was uh, was devoid of oxygen. The surface of the planet was just uh, was just bare rock. So somehow the complex, you know, kind of tangled bush of of life emerged by common descent from a single putative organism in this strange place, evolving and then speciating in, according to the laws of natural selection into the entire beautiful menagerie of life as we know it now. All of it came from that kind of weird environment. And the timing of that event, 
that genesis event is is hotly debated um, as you can imagine because the fossil and and geochemical evidence for those organisms is very scant um, and and difficult to interpret due to the incredible age of the samples and the limited number of samples that we actually have um, the reason for this is that there are very few uh, extant cretons, which is you know an area of rock or an agglomeration of rock of roughly the same age and composition, um, that are over four billion years old. Because the fact that the planet is dynamic and the continental crust tends to be recycled uh, by plate tectonics every you know hundred thousand years, million years or so, um, so uh, it can also be altered by metamorphic processes on the surface. It could be eroded by physical and chemical weathering, or it can just be straight up destroyed by impacts with comets uh, or meteorites. So what few ancient rock assemblages do exist um, and remain are, are found in parts of Greenland, Australia and Canada, and they, they've offered up some really cool things. So the fossils uh, that have been found, or, or at least the structures that are being interpreted as fossils from this period, are understandably very simple, in, in, in quotes, uh, and provide, as, as you'd imagine, very little insight into their function. Um, so stromatolites, which are, are column, column-like or kind of mound-like accretionary structures um, that are formed by, or thought to be formed by, layers of biofilms. So this is a kind of an agglomeration of, of cyanobacteria, which is a bacteria that can photosynthesize, uh, and, and like some sedimentary material uh, formed in a, in a, or bound up in a complex matrix of kind of living and, and abiotic features. Uh, and these are found in kind of shallow, shallow marine environments. And for me, anyway, they're the most definitive early evidence for life. Uh, on Earth, and they emerged around 3.7 billion years ago. But um, some of the fossil evidence that we have suggests that it could be earlier. But you know, lots of debate. However, you know, I'm going to be saying that a lot. There's still spirit to debate about every single aspect of this, uh, including the stromatolites and their function and whether they were biological. You know, what we interpret now, um, maybe maybe different. There are still stromatolites that exist. Uh, they're very rare, um, and they don't necessarily always look like the fossil evidence that we have. So, um, not solved either. Um, we can turn to geochemistry and look at biomarker evidence um, in the form of uh, the Delta 13C isotopic record, um, particularly of some potentially biological graphite that was found in Greenland and dated to about 3.8 billion years ago. Um, and this, this um, sample has been used to draw conclusions about the genesis of life as well, um, but, but are very difficult to interpret as well. So the Delta 13C um, ratio describes the, the balance between the stable isotopes of carbon, carbon-13 and carbon-12. And thermodynamically, biology prefers to take up the lighter carbon-12, and therefore any negative delta-13C ratio, somewhere around minus 25 parts or so per mil, that we get generally points to the action of life taking up the lighter, the lighter isotope. However, there are still abiotic processes that can alter it, stuff going on in the atmosphere. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, and the possibility of of contamination of the samples really can't can't be ruled out. If it's not you know contamination in the lab, it could be contamination from another um, sedimentary um, sedimentary compound. Um, so already the story is pretty is pretty muddy, and this is just about the when, and we haven't even touched really on the on the how. Um, so in order to answer or at least attempt to answer that, we're going to have to have to look at some quick history. So uh, until Louis and Marie Pasteur kind of proved otherwise during a series of fantastically simple experiments during the 1860s, most people believed in the so-called spontaneous generation of living cells from non-living matter. So you know, just there they were, poof. Um, now we can obviously 
you know, from our, our ivory towers, we can see the, the violation of the, the laws of thermodynamics in that, but, you know, things have come on quite a way. Um, and soon afterwards, uh, Charles Darwin uh, posited a very controversial theory regarding, regarding speciation and evolution of life that required no spontaneity, really, um, and suggested instead that, that beneficial adaptations to environmental pressures caused by mutations could, um, over many generations, explain the full diversity of life. But in terms of the origin of life, uh, Darwin kind of imagined a simple, simple protein forming in a warm little pond um, that he saw filled with tasty compounds and, and, and bathed in light and, and electricity from, from lightning. Uh, and that this protein was ready to undergo more evolution en route to some sort of biological complexity. So it was natural selection you know, all the way down to the, the cellular level. So the idea of this kind of self-contained self pool uh, or pond kind of held held fast and then was reimagined by other scientists like uh, Alexander Operin and, and J.S. Haldane who, who pictured a complex primordial soup of, of prebiotic organic compounds that were formed by photolysis in an atmosphere nearly devoid of oxygen and devoid of a UV layer so you know there would be lots of atmospheric chemistry going on very quickly um, and that these um, organic compounds were undergoing a type of natural selection uh, in which you know the monomers or the, the chains of, of of compounds that were beginning to stick together uh, would combine in in growing complexity to produce polymers chains of monomers uh, in in droplets that behaved kind of similarly to life but were governed by purely physical and chemical processes so they might fuse with other droplets or, or divide to form like offspring um, and even have some primitive motility that just resulted from differences in the chemical gradients of the, the solution that they were in um, so in order to test this kind of primordial soup theory, um, the infamous Urey-Miller experiment or Miller-Ura experiment was set up, which sought to replicate the, the early conditions of the Earth, uh, known at the time anyway, uh, in, a, in a laboratory environment to discover what organic compounds could be formed in, in that kind of environment. Um, so they found a, a host of amino acids, uh, potentially up to 20, that were formed in the flask from a mixture of reduced gases like methane, ammonia and hydrogen. Obviously, amino acids are pretty important for life. They're the, the building blocks of, of proteins. And as eukaryotes, we use about 20 or so of those to, to make pretty much all of our proteins. So subsequent experiments have, have tweaked those initial conditions so that they're more in line with our current understanding of the conditions on the early Earth. Um, with varying levels of success, it must be said. But the outcome of, of those Yuri Miller-like experiments remains that amino acids you know, those, those building blocks uh, and, you know, very important compounds for metabolic processes can be formed relatively easily in the right conditions. But that's not the whole solution because another important component of the cell is, is some way of containing it, uh, a membrane, um, to, to hold in all the cellular machinery and, you know, make, sh make sure all the gross stuff from outside doesn't, doesn't sneak in. Um, and this can be formed as well from compounds that are derived from this kind of chaotic process in the primordial soup. Specifically, polymers called uh, phospholipids, which are still used to make cell membranes in contemporary life. So once we have all that cell stuff contained, we can, we can really do some much more complex chemistry. Um, but the, the important problem or the, the, the difficult issue is, is passing information about how to grow and behave to from one generation to the next generation. It's all, it's all well and good to be able to contain, contain some proteins and, and, and keep things going. But the important part is to, to pass that information on from generation to the next. So for this, we need uh, you know, something like a genome. So DNA, um, deoxyribonucleic acid for 
for those who don't remember that from high school, uh, is, a, is an amazing molecule that we now know contains all the instructions that we need to, to build new life. Um, but it's, it's intricate and, and very complex. And it's probably unlikely to have formed by the random agglomerations of proteins and amino acids in this, in this grubby little pool. So we kind of have like a, a chicken and egg scenario where you know, we have life uh, and we have the code for life to build more life, but it's unlikely that that code could have emerged on its own without life in, it, in the first place to, to, to protect it and build it and, and concentrate you know, the, the required chemical compounds. Um, so you know, scientists have thought about this for a little while uh, and turned to RNA, which is ribonucleic acid. Uh, which, um, while it, you know, it's a crucial molecule for, for loads of cellular process, um, you know, really important for directing how, how proteins are built, um, it predates RNA. Uh, sorry, it predates DNA, I should say, is the important part. Um, and therefore, it's the focus of what's known as the RNA world hypothesis. So this, this single chain of nucleotides, as opposed to the much more complex uh, double-stranded chain of, of nucleotides that, that forms DNA acts as both uh, an enzyme, uh, kind of a catalyst for, for biochemical processes, but also as a hereditary molecule that you know, can pass information um, from one generation to the next. And therefore, you know, we think that maybe it could have held the first genome and the first species of, of living organism could have been some sort of, of ribolife like this. Um, and, you know, Proponents of this will point to the fact that there are some viruses today, uh, the retroviruses, for example, that use RNA to still store their genomes. Um, so given that many of the fundamental parts of the cell can be built from instructions coded in RNA, the idea that RNA was uh, you know, kind of a key developmental stage en route to DNA um, is, is pretty pervasive, but it's still controversial and, and not yet entirely solved. Because it's problematic to imagine how even an RNA replicate, replicator could have evolved during the conditions thought to exist on the early Earth without being you know, constantly destroyed by, by chemical reactions long before it got to that stage of complexity. So you know, many of the steps to RNA are also you know, quite inefficient and, and would have proceeded very slowly, maybe perhaps too slowly, um, during the history, the early history of the planet to be kind of evolutionarily favourable. Um, so the debate continues, you know, perhaps there was a, a pre-RNA world with even more primitive replicators and then a, a pre-RNA -pre world all, all the way down, ad infinitum, you know, to, to just a single molecule. But that's not the only that's not the only hypothesis about this. Alternatively, you know, some folks have suggested that maybe um, a metabolism came first and then could be powered by by proteins that worked as as enzymes first, so as 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 catalysts to make more proteins. Um, so then the RNA and the DNA emerged afterwards to store that genetic material once you know it was all contained. So the conditions required for this, um, for a self-sustaining synthesis of proteins, are quite extreme, though. You need really high temperatures and high pressures, and at the time, it wasn't really thought that this was possible in the early Earth. Um, but now we know that these type of conditions are found, however, in and around deep-sea hydrothermal vents, which uh, kind of are emerging as strong contenders now for, for a possible site of biogenesis on, on this planet, and maybe even on others, uh, serping the, the primordial soup or the warm little pond. Um, there are many other hypotheses that I can't go into right now. Uh, for example, one that, that involves clays and, and especially the aluminium-rich clay or the aluminium-rich clay Montmorillonite, um, which, which may have formed kind of this protective matrix um, that could have accelerated the, the development of our RNA world because it kind of behaves a little bit weirdly like life clay. Um, it's, a, it's, a weird, it's, a, it's a weird material. Um, so, you know, that's a very 
a very brief introduction to a very incredibly complex and rapidly developing field um, dealing with you know, the, a very important long-standing question, you know, where did we come from? So to try and, and determine just how close we are to answering that next time, uh, I'm going to delve into a little more detail and outline the current state of the field and, and maybe its future directions. Okay, I have multiple questions. I'm sure you do, Anna. <laughs> um, first one, just really quickly, if I'm remembering correctly from biology, viruses aren't really termed alive. So is, uh, is there any RNA-based uh, thing on the planet that is considered alive? Well, this gets down to that philosophical idea about what is life. Um, you can certainly make strong arguments that their viruses aren't alive because they need a, a host to survive. They can't exist outside you know, of, a host in, of a host on their own. So there are plenty of folks who would say, yeah, that makes them not alive. But the fact that they can replicate and metabolize and, and move around, other folks would point to the fact that maybe, maybe they are. So this is the philosophical idea about what we define as life. But as far as I know, there's nothing else that stores its genome in, in RNA apart from, apart from viruses. But it's a very good point. Um, you know, there's, there's several, several exceptions like that. And that's why I really wanted to avoid the what is life question, because it's kind of a career ender from what I've heard. <laughs> I was going to ask that question, though, so maybe I'll ask it now. <laughs> I mean, so my understanding of what life is, at least I think Schrodinger's work on this was really interesting, but he kind of suggests that, that life is just a collection of molecules effectively that um, can self-replicate and therefore evolve by natural selection and and that's quite an interesting idea because it, it kind of suggests that maybe if you get molecules in the right just in in the right you know combination then this will just start right and i think that's what original life research is all about it's about finding what combination of molecules can you have that could come together in certain conditions and and and, and just kick start natural selection like that exactly that um, but you might say then that, you know, these oil droplets, you know, these hydrocarbon droplets, would could they be considered life? I mean, arguably, they behave similarly. They self-replicate in a way. They, they move around. Yeah, there's, a, there's like a, a examples of sort of sand molecules in certain structures that can replicate and things like this. And you get into strange like arguments about is that life or is yeah. that something else i mean we could you know people have made the argument like is clay life <laughs> You're like yeah. well i'm pretty sure it's not but it forms a very <laughs> lifelike kind of crystalline structure and it behaves in some cases very in a very lifelike way so it's it, it's this is the philosophy guys that i was trying to avoid but it's it's you know the, arguably the most interesting part of it and it's not something i wanted to neglect necessarily but just because of the fact that it doesn't seem to get us any further to answering the question uh, you know is there, and... is there a requirement in the origin of life uh, studies that it only happened once um, or can we I mean if we're considering other planets huge and strange and varied events happen in the formation or the evolution of a planetary body and system can how easy is it is basically i think what i'm asking how easy is the origin of life to happen and therefore how often can we expect it to happen this is a great question and i'm, I'm going to touch on it a little bit next week and um, because the idea of it happening more than once uh, on this planet was actually a, an area of research that was kind of in vogue in like the 90s it's called like the shadow biosphere because the idea as you pointed out is that if we can find just one more one more origin of life event, like whether it's on this planet or another one, it immediately increases the chances of it being an easy thing to do. When we still only have a sample of one, it's essentially you know, impossible to tell how easy it was. Just one more event 
you know, whether it's, you know, on Earth or on Mars or, you know, another planet in our solar system would immediately shine some light on that. And I really like the, the whole shadow biosphere idea that there could be two origin of life events on the same planet, which would, you know, really, really reduce the, the, the possibility of it, uh, you know, of it being too complex or, or difficult to get going. Um, but as far as I know, not much has come from, from that area. Just to touch on that, I, I get the feeling that... Um... You know the sort of warm, murky soup that that was originally imagined for this, the the origin of life. Uh, given how common in the solar system and in the universe we find like complex carbon chemistry, you know, amino acids in in uh, comets on um, sort of icy icy moons have complex carbon chemistry in their atmospheres. It seems like almost the early Earth might have been more soupy than the current Earth. Because one thing about life as we know it is it, it eats carbon chemistry for breakfast, you know. That it, all of the, any of this sort of soupy carbon chemistry just gets, gets eaten up by life. So um, I wonder if that's why we only see one, well, that's one of the many reasons I think we only see one origin of life is just because as soon as you get life going, those, um, those ingredients disappear and become part of the, the one form of life that, that developed. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the early, the early Earth was supposed to be pretty pretty weird in terms of its carbon chemistry there had been a lot of different compounds being produced rapidly by photolysis without you know a uv layer to protect the surface um so yeah the complexities of, of the chemistry that could have occurred over you know geological time would certainly lend lend some credence to that i guess the energetic input is the, is the problem and then the containment to you know, really concentrate that chemistry um is where things become a little bit more complicated if you have it in the scale of a pond you can't really concentrate your chemistry too much when you start getting down to like the cellular level containment then things can get even more complicated it's that stage that's that's tricky to me anyway you know i should say i'm not actually a biologist but (laughs) um that's that's the bit that 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 proves tricky to me is that is the is the containment i guess the concentration of of that complex chemistry but more next more next time uh, or in an episode's time anyway so next up uh, hannah is going to tell us a little bit about global circulation models or gcms um so what are they uh, and why do we use them hannah well one thing i think we can all agree on is the fact that planets are inherently three-dimensional objects so that means that if we want to accurately interpret the exoplanet observations that we're making be that through the transits and transmission and emission or through direct imaging we need to be able to understand the path of those photons and their interaction with that that planet and that's where the gcms come in gcm stands for global circulation model or in a few more specific cases the global climate model Um, gcms actually started back in the early 1900s as an attempt at weather prediction systems but have since grown spectacularly with the invention of far better computing powers and with the use of comparative global data. Um, And that not only applies to the Earth now, but to other planets. Now, a GCM attempts to describe the full three-dimensional geometry of an atmosphere by numerically solving the physics and the chemistry. Um, And Amundsen et al. 2016 puts it really nicely in the introduction. GCMs are three-dimensional models that include a dynamical core solving the equations of motion for the fluid combined with a radiation scheme for treating stellar heating and thermal cooling of the atmosphere. But this takes a lot more if we break it down into a little bit more detail. So a typical GCM will have to include the dynamics applying the Navier-Stokes equations, which essentially describe the motion of those particles. 
the thermodynamics are the heat-induced changes, the radiative transfer, which is just the really fancy way of saying how light is interacting with the particles in that atmosphere. Um, and that's just the start of the physics that we're looking at. When you introduce in the chemistry then, which is going to include innumerable reactions and rates of reactions, there will also be a number of conservation problems that will need to be calculated based on the feedback between the physics and the chemical state at any one point in the atmosphere. And then, of course, all of these then require coupling together. So they, they react together, like I just described. And for example, how does the dynamics, the movement of the atmosphere, affect the transport of different chemical species uh, and thus the chemical reactions and timescales and energies involved in those? So in some cases, even here on the Earth, we don't know the exact solutions to the physics behind the coupling of different regions of our atmosphere, as they're not they're not purely analytical. So... That means that they can't be worked out by solving an equation, but have to be approximated by running lots of simulations of the same thing with slightly different starting points, and then taking the average of that or the distribution of each of the results from each of those models that you run to uh, account for the final parameter. Um, and that can take millions and millions of inputs and turn into one parameter, which can you know, take a lot of time to calculate. For somewhere like the Earth, a GCM can become even more complicated. So um, a GCM will also have to include things like surface topography and more importantly on the Earth, the oceans. And this can vastly Im like change our understanding and interpretation of quote-unquote habitable worlds in the future of exoplanet studies. So we really need to understand how all of these things kind of come together. But just to go to the basics, how does the GCM work? So a GCM places a grid over a globe with both horizontal and vertical resolution. So our planet grid cells uh, covering the whole Earth and then layer upon layer stretching up into space. But also in case of the Earth, then we need to extend layer upon layer down into the oceans where there are oceans and not land. Um, as the oceans themselves actually play a really huge role in our climate and atmospheric circulation um, and that's because of the chemical capture that they do the thermodynamics uh, and the radiative feedback that you get the reflection and absorption of light so for something like what we're doing with exoplanets we don't actually have to consider those very complex things we have other things to worry about so for a gas giant planet we we don't have to care about that but the boundary condition that you place at the bottom, instead of the topography of the surface of the Earth or something like that, you're going to have to consider what that might be and whether that's realistic. Um, and again, to use use quotes, I mean bottom of the atmosphere for these gas giants. I mean, the question is, where is the bottom of the atmosphere? So uh, in a gas giant atmosphere, you'd have to consider the fact that the atmosphere itself will make up a significant fraction of the radius of the planet, perhaps even 10% of the radius. And this is very much unlike a terrestrial world where you have a very shallow atmosphere and approximations can be used on the dynamical equations, which makes it simpler and easier to calculate. Whereas in a gas giant planet, it's likely going to be important to consider the changes in gravity with altitude and the treatment of radiation throughout. Um, and this is going to have an impact on the dynamics, the movement. So you need to solve the full equations, which takes a lot longer. So it's, it's a very computationally expensive uh, and you definitely need supercomputers to run these things. So... 
the first coupling of dynamics and radiation, the two most important things we want to be considering, how the air is moving, how the material is moving in the atmosphere and how light is interacting with that material um, for exoplanet GCMs was actually presented in 2009. Um, and in fact, this coupling of radiation and the dynamics hadn't even been done for the gas giant planets in our own solar system. So the, the Shoman et al. 2009 paper was the first of its kind in, in a number of aspects. And that model was called Spark, uh, and it couples the dynamical MIT GCM uh, to a radiative transfer code, which allows them to get a 3D picture uh, of these planetary atmospheres. So GCMs are actually being used extensively in exoplanet studies to try and really understand the planetary atmospheres, make predictions uh, and match observed parameters. But it's not the only one out there. The Spark MIT GCM uh, isn't the only one. Uh, and what we've discussed a number of times on the show is the importance of multiple things doing the same thing. So there's actually a, a quite a large number of groups and codes which treat different components of the GCM, um, all of those different aspects that I explained before. And they all contribute to this whole. Uh, and importantly, the methods used in the most common uh, and modern GCMs are both sophisticated and computationally adapted, such that they can be run on a finite timescale, um, which is very, very important if we want to get any results out of them. Um, Intercomparison between these types of models for exoplanet studies is just it's in its infancy right now. Um, and some of the first ones were presented comparing the UK Met Office GCM, which has been adapted for exoplanets, to the Spark MIT GCM. Um, and from this study in Amundsen et al. 2016, they concluded that differences between them are going to help break down the degeneracies between the models compared to the physically robust parameters that have been put into the models themselves. So that really helps us understand um, where the models are acting differently. Um, and additionally, what's really cool is the increasing quality of the observational data that we can compare to these GCMs um, is, is vital in our understanding of these giant exoplanets. So talking with a few people who have developed and run these GCMs, one of the things they highlighted are all of the things that are, are coming or are being worked on right now for these giant planets. The biggest thing that will make their way into the GCMs in the very near future in detail is the inclusion of these exotic clouds that I've talked about before on the show. So clouds uh, are, in fact, one of the most important things in the Earth's GCM after the oceans. So clouds are hugely important in terrestrial planets as well. However, on the Earth, we only really have to consider the condensation, formation and precipitation of, of one type of cloud sea species, and that's really dominated by water. Uh, in these exotic giant planets, as I've said before, the atmospheres, there could be multiple species condensing. Um, we don't have a full understanding of how these species might precipitate or rain out. Um, and can they then once they've rained out, be essentially ignored, or is their vertical circulation drifting them up? And, and that's what these GCMs are doing, is, is allowing us to explore the parameter space of this vertical circulation. Um, the species also interact in light different ways. So if you have multiple species in the atmosphere, the light's going to interact differently depending on the size, the particle droplets, the radiative transfer could be simple or really rather complex. Um, so it's not an easy thing to put into the GCMs. Um, it's also important to consider the differences this is going to cause in the temperature profile and feedback is something that also needs to be considered when we're looking at planetary atmospheres. 
Uh, from what I hear and, and hope, there are lots of groups working on this problem right now. And I think uh, with the speed of developments that we've seen in GCMs already, we should see the comparisons more and more to our observations, which is really important. Um, and they've already in, they've already shown that the understanding of clouds is, is going to be really key in the future. Um, additionally, it, as we move to these colder, smaller gas giant planets, um, though not quite solar system temperatures, um, we need to look at the 3D impact of disequilibrium chemistries. So the way the gases interact with each other, um, where photochemistry, so the impact of the stellar irradiation, um, will play a role in defining what chemical species are then in the atmosphere. And Andrew was touching on the different chemical species you get in the atmosphere. Um, there's actually only been one study that really looks at these in 3D before. So many groups are attempting to couple the 1D and 2D codes that they've they've already got um, and are well established to these 3D GCMs. So coupling in the chemistry as well so that that can be independently tuned um, is really important. Um, these GCMs, uh, as I've hinted before, can be used for terrestrial planets uh, and for predictive purposes. So in this regard, uh, relating to what we've been talking about a few times, um, groups are using Earth and, and Martian GCMs. We have quite good GCMs looking at Mars at the moment um, to look at potential signatures of life-bearing worlds. So what, what might be coming from these? And the GCMs allow us to really investigate different portions of the, the atmosphere and what might be generating that either if it's based uh, on surface or uh, ocean processes, so we can rule different things out. Um, and this brings me just to one more thing, and, and it's the last one, I promise. Um, observations are key. Uh, same, same old tune I'm singing. Um, we actually had the same problem with Earth-based GCMs. They, they were thought of in the early 1900s, as I said, but it wasn't until the late 50s that they started to really develop when we had global data to compare it to. Uh, and, and since then, the data that we've been getting has just been increasing. And those have really helped us fine tune these models um, and also help consider what each component is needed to be added into those models. Because it started out just as circulation of the air, then the oceans. But the oceans were treated differently. Now you have to treat them as a, as a deep ocean and clouds and stuff being added in. So it's with the observations comes the understanding of what needs to be added into a model to get a full understanding uh, of these planets. So the observations we're getting of exoplanet atmospheres now, in my opinion, are pretty sweet. Um, but some more recent observations, we're really trying to carve out the different regions of the planetary atmosphere um, and really look at different parts of parameter space that we will help us not only understand the planets but test these models so we can actually see whether uh, the GCMs are able to replicate what we're seeing um, and as we've had before we can map some of these exoplanets through special techniques and over the coming years we've got a couple more planets that we're going to be looking at with this technique so we can make these these comparisons really nicely with these 3D models that we've got so uh, hopefully the the GCMs will be developing alongside the observations as we're getting nicer and better observations and different planets that we can look at so that we can really understand and disentangle the physics of what's going on in these planetary atmospheres. Um, I would just like to, to say that as a big thank you to Tiffany Katari and Benjamin Drummond who spoke with me about all of this because they're both experts on GCMs um, for exoplanets and have worked on different models so they provided with very different perspective on, on 
what what GCMs are for and why we need to use them. So um, it's very helpful talking to a couple of people about this one. Fantastic. Thanks, Anna. Um, I guess my question would be, our observations from exoplanets, especially the giant exoplanets, are helping us to improve giant exoplanet GCMs. Do you think a better understanding of their physics would help us to understand more about the cloud physics that occur on the Earth? Because I know you didn't, you gave it a pretty, um, a pretty light, a, a light going over. But clouds are really difficult to do in in GCMs, yeah. right? So the more the more physics we have, even if it's weird, surely that will help us to to get about a better handle on on Earth Earthborn physics or Earthbound physics, right? Right. Well, what what we're doing right now is um, just the condensation chemistry. So it's very similar to just having the condensate clouds rather than seeds or um, any of the photochemistry that we do see here in the Earth's atmosphere. So we have a mixture of different processes in the Earth's atmosphere, which you'd uh, consider to make clouds. And that depends on the altitude of the cloud, um, where it forms and, and how it's forming. So what we're looking at for exoplanets right now is just one type of formation, and that's condensation, which we do have here on the Earth. Um, and it's by no means easy in any way. Uh, there are a lot of approximations involved. And that's one thing we've got to be really clear about with any of the models that we're using is there's a lot of approximations that are involved in those. Um, and one thing that we're actually finding right now is if, you know, the, if the model doesn't fit the data we're not at the point where we go, well, the data must be wrong. We're at the point where we're going, we've missed something in the model. And that's really nice to be seeing because it's it's been a long time and we're getting now to the point where we've got that resolution of our data and, that, and the precision more more exactly that we can, we can say that. So we're playing off each other. Where I think in exoplanets, models have been very much leading the way Right now, observations are catching up and we're going to have to play off each other until we, we start to understand exactly what's going on. And that's really exciting for me as an observer, as a biased observer. But I, I love taking my observations and comparing the results that I get from those two models and to these 3D GCM because it, it gives you, it allows you to really think of it as a planet. Um, as we're just tracing the light through the atmosphere, these, these GCMs really allow you to think of it as a a full system uh, and I think that's really important for us to to get the uh, atmospheric and planetary physics right absolutely and it's a good it's just good scientific practice right observations improve models models help us understand observations uh, and so on and so forth it's great stuff I'm, I'm really I'm really happy that we're at this at the stage now where we, we get that feedback that interplay between so them. am I but the papers are getting longer <laughs> you love a long paper Hannah come on I've seen your papers oh, God. Yeah, I know. That's, so no. <laughs> um, I did actually have a technical question that someone here at Ames asked me the other day that I didn't know the answer to. So um, just very quickly for the listeners, uh, talking about the concept of scale height, which is the um, which is how uh, you know density or pressure drops off exponentially with height, and it's super important for like Earth climate stuff and atmospheric chemistry. And I was asked where. Um, Z zero, like the baseline for scale height, would be taken on a gas giant. Like, what is the what is the the floor of, of those? So we normally take models? it at um, a bar. So in, like, we normally set zero at one bar. Okay, that's um, interesting. And we normally set RP, so the optical radius of the planet. We assume to be one bar, as that's the essentially the photosphere of that planet. Yeah. So the same with the sun. Um, we look in the optical bands, the photosphere is 
um, what is defined by the optical um, portion of the wavelengths, uh, we see that we have exoplanets, we assume that the optical broadband radius is the one bar pressure level. Yeah, that's kind of what I said, but I think I might have used opacity instead. I didn't use bar. So I was way well, off. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of, yeah. People work in very different scales. Everything's in bar for me because I'm a scuba diver. So I've always ev- learned everything in atmospheres of bar. It's and an I old get school, really confused when it's anything unit. else. I like it. <laughs> right. So it's been a, a busy month of news. Uh, and reporting from our international news desk is Hugh. So what's been going on with exoplanets this month? I guess I'll start with the news that in August, a low-mass companion to an Earth-like planet was seen to transit its star. A hypothesis confirmed by multiple observers across America, and I am, of course, talking about the solar eclipse, which unfortunately I didn't witness, but well, except via the internet, I guess. But I hope some of our listeners got a good view of this unique uh, transit event. Um, did, did you guys see anything? Did you see the... The partial, Andrew? Or? I was actually back in the UK, so I think I got 3%. <laughs> oh, yeah, I at just as the sunset. At, at a very bad time. It was time. just as sunset. And I, I hear actually people in Exeter saw, saw it just as the sun was setting. Unfortunately, I was in Woking and it was obviously cloudy. Of course. Poor show from Exocast. Apologies, listeners. <laughs> yeah, we're rubbish. So maybe you thought I was going to mention exomoons there, but I didn't. And maybe you're worried, in fact, that astronomers are running out of nouns to affix the word exo to. Um, Well, you don't need to worry because this month saw the first photometric detection of exocomets. So these came, of course, from the Kepler spacecraft, which observed six aperiodic and irregularly shaped dips that were up to about 1.1% deep across the star of Kik 3542116. And three of these were extremely significant. So it looks like a like a real detection there. And the reason I say uh, the first photometric um, exocomets is that we've actually seen spectroscopic evidence of exocomets around many nearby, nearby stars as far as back, back to the 80s, actually. So this is the first photometric one. And these dips appear to have come from an extended but fast-moving object with a gradual decrease in, in, in dust behind it. So... Yeah, exactly what we'd expect from a comet and its tail. And from the masses of the material, the um, the paper by Rappaport et al. suggests that the comets are similar in size to Halley in our own solar system. And in fact, they found another candidate around Kik 11084727, which um, is a similar F-type star. And it's certainly possible that a systematic search of all the Kepler light curves could find dozens more of these exocomets in there. So that's interesting. Uh, exocomets has actually been one of the hypotheses to explain the strange events that happen around Kik 8462852 or, or Tabby's star uh, and that we have some new data in a couple of new papers on that the first by Josh Simon which used archival data from ASAS and Assassin to long-term monitoring telescopes um, to show that the brightness of that unusual star has been uh, well decreasing through the Kepler mission, as was found by other studies, but then also brightening in 2014, which was not yet known. Um, so it seems like the, the flux isn't just decreasing on that, which is something we didn't know yet. And the second paper shows that um, the extinction is also increasing, depending on when you're measuring it, I guess, um, in multiple bands, suggesting that actually the dusty material is, is in the system itself, rather than in the interplanetary medium between us and the star. Um, which is an, another interesting result. Uh, moving on from that to WASP-121. 
So if you asked uh, exoplanet astronomers 10 years ago, who were just about when exoplanet atmospheres were first being studied with something like Hubble, then it was thought that many of these hot giant planets would have inversions in their atmospheres. So these are like in Earth's stratosphere, and in fact in the atmospheres of most most planets in the solar system, um, there's some material that absorbs solar radi radiation high in the atmosphere and heats up a layer around it in the stratosphere, and this produces emission-like features in the spectra of these planets, um, rather than the absorption features we usually see in, in cooler planets for, for hot Jupiters. And, well, 10 years ago we thought we might find a lot of these, but until now, um, with the exception of one speculative claim, this, this hadn't really happened. That is, until this month when... Uh, Hubble and Spitzer observations, led by Tom Evans at the University of Exeter, revealed that, that, that WASP-121 has such an inversion in its atmosphere. And they did this by measuring the secondary eclipse of what is an extremely hot, hot Jupiter at 2,500 Kelvin. And they found that the water in that atmosphere was consistent with being an emission rather than being an absorption, so that, that the temperature pressure profile was inverted. And they suggest that uh, titanium oxide and vanadium oxide are the likely culprits for this high altitude absorber, although hazes and clouds could also be involved. And hopefully they, 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 they suggest that future observations might even resolve where this stratosphere is located. Uh, moving on from hot Jupiters to sort of hot super-Earths and hot Neptunes. Um, Small transiting planets should reflect some light from their surface, and therefore when they're passing behind the stars, that reflected light should effectively disappear. However, for these tiny planets, that effect is so minuscule, something like less than a few parts per million, that detecting even each secondary eclipse, or even when you, when you average many secondary eclipses from something as precise as Kepler, it's impossible to detect what the reflect, how, how much light is being reflected from the surface. However, what is possible is if you take the signals from many hundreds of planets and add those all together to give an average secondary eclipse, and therefore measure, measure the average reflectivity of certain groups of planets. And that's exactly what Holly Sheets et al. did this month, and showed that uh, Earths and super-Earths reflect only between about 5 and 10% of the light that hits their surface, depending on um, the size. So uh, two to four Earth radii planets appear to be the least reflective, which is interesting in itself. Um, this means that close-in super-Earths are darker than expected, in fact, far darker than all of the solar system planets. Uh, Earth's albedo, or reflectivity, is about 0.3, whereas Mercury is about 0.14. So, um, but actually these aren't these aren't as dark as many hot Jupiters, which have albedos of less of, of usually a few percent. Hot Jupiters are surprisingly dark, and we don't know why. Yeah. Um, what is interesting is those those kind of size boundaries and what we can then expect for the type of either atmosphere they might be able to maintain or surface they might be able to have. So that might kind of speak to what their reflectivity would be. It'd be interesting to see from further out planets where potentially water clouds could exist because you'd expect those to be very reflective. Like, or or uh, something like Venus, Venus. which is, yeah. is highly reflective. So Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah did they group these... They group these planets by size as well as, you know, the amount of incident flux. Do they normalise for that? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> Certainly, yeah, I think they primarily group them by size and they only look to the hot planets because these are the ones that give the highest signal effectively. Sure. Um, but maybe something like Plato could, could dig down further and further away from the star into these secondary eclipse um, values. Um, so moving on to TRAPPIST-1, which we talk about every every month, so I thought I'd... Uh, 
update you all with this. So the age of Trappist-1 is an interesting unknown question, really. A young system might suggest that the star may get more habitable with time as the number of flares, which we currently see as extremely high, decreases, whereas an old age for the system would suggest that this tightly bound multi-planet system we see is unlikely to have gone chaotically unstable and therefore maybe these these tight multi-planet systems are, are much nicer for life to live on. Um, so by combining loads of different metrics for for age, including dynamics, so older stars move faster, um, lithium abundance, which is a primordial element that you find in the atmospheres, and things like surface gravity, st stars kind of puff up with age, and a number more. Um, Adam Bagasser and Eric Mamajek suggested that the age of Trappist-1 is actually 7.6 plus or minus 2 giga years, so a lot older than it's been suggested in the past. And this is very interesting because we do see all these flares from this system, so if it is that old, then it suggests that maybe it'll never be habitable uh, in, in, in the sort of way that we expect solar-type stars to be, just because of all that high-energy radiation. Um, from one tightly bound multi-planet multi system around an M-dwarf to another, so YZ set is an extremely nearby M-dwarf that's also extremely small, so it's only 10 light-years away, and it's 0.13 solar masses, so 13% um, so the mass of the Sun. And 13 years of radial velocity observations taken by HARPS and published by Nicola Studio de Fru suggests that it's orbited by a tightly packed multi-planet system um, with small planets orbiting at 2 days, 3 days and 4.6 days. So these are all close to 3 to 2 integer multiples, as, as something we've come to, to find very common in, in these multiple planet systems. And their masses of 0.75 to 1.1 Earth masses also make them the smallest planets ever found by radial velocities. And there's also evidence for a 4.7 uh, Earth mass planet at only a one-day period, so a 2 to 1 residence with, with planet B. So yeah, th another interesting system that's ten, well, four times closer than TRAPPIST. So if we are sending these probes out to, well, in, in, in 200 years maybe, then, then this might be a better candidate even. And from multi-planet systems detected by HARPS to Another one of those, so Tau Ceti is um, a world that's had its, or a star that's had its fair share of media t attention in the last five years. So it's a bright K-dwarf, in fact it's one of the, um, the brightest and closest solar type stars to the sun, and for that reason it's been used in a lot of sci-fi, so I'm led to believe. Um, and a 2011 paper suggested that there were six planet candidates around it. And that was updated in 2012 to be nine. And then a later paper by the same group suggested a different six were real. So we've had a lot of confusion about this, this system so far. And these signals back in 2012 were some of the smallest ever detected by RVs. And it's fair to say that a lot of astronomers were pretty unconvinced that these were actual planets. And now five years down the line and with five years more data, um, probably the largest data sets ever been used in an RV paper, um, and, and, and a lot of groundbreaking work to remove the noise that's intrinsic from both the instrument and the star. We had another paper this month on the planets of, of Tau Ceti, and it suggests that there are only four strong signals for planets circling Tau Ceti. And in fact, only two of these were part of the, that previous uh, six-planet analysis, um, that, so effectively killing the planets B, C, and D, whereas keeping E and F. Uh, the remaining signals had, had well, the, the, the four signals have periods of 20, 50, 160, and 650 days, with masses uh, between about 1.8 and 4 Earth masses, so all terrestrial planets, um, on, and some of them on extremely long orbits as well. So th this is really pushing the boundaries of, of what we can do with radial velocities to, to find these planets. And in fact, um, 
these this is probably another reason that these 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 planets will remain as candidates and i think the astronomical community will require a lot more data before we are convinced that these signals are in fact real sticking with planets that maybe don't exist um <laughs> way back in 2014 uh ian crossfield et al kind of statistically validated um 104 exoplanets from the K2 mission and added them to our roster of of, uh, growing list of of sort of confirmed or validated planets. And this validation technique involves uh, looking at the shape of the light curve, looking at observations, um, follow-up observations of of if there are any nearby stars and um, modelling the system to to rule out uh, false positives to something like 99.9%. Uh, but this month, two separate papers have revealed that some of these uh, planets are not that. So uh, K2, 78, 82, and 92, um, in a paper by Juan Cabrera, were found to have nearby stars that had deeper signals and effectively were eclipsing binaries rather than planets. And these, uh, originally in the validation method, would have been ruled out by the Kepler's vetting procedure. But in this case, the vetting procedure wasn't really good enough and and they weren't ruled out as um, eclipsing binaries which is a shame and then three more um, very recently uh, k2 51 67 and 76 which were also validated and uh, said to be warm jupiters were found to rather than being um, sort of bloated jupiters be instead giant stars or uh, sorry um low mass stars so m dwarfs or uh maybe brown dwarfs, with radii only slightly larger than Jupiter, but with masses tens to hundreds of times larger. Um, so this suggests that this validation technique that uh, it was used needs to be pretty... Well, we need to be very careful when we use it, that we, uh, we know what might slip through the gaps. And yeah, that's it for this month's Exocast news. And to finish off this month, it's Andrew's turn to adopt an exoplanet into our growing Exocast family. So... Who are we welcoming? Well, this month I've decided to add GJ667CC to our collection of Weird and Wonderful Worlds. Um, This is a large terrestrial planet in a planetary system of two uh, that orbits a small red dwarf in a triple star system. Um, uh, At one point it was thought there were up to six other planets uh, around the star, but a 2014 paper proved that these signals were likely due to stellar noise. So this, this... system has been populated and depopulated several times now. Um, the other stars in the GJ667 system, uh, that's A and B, are K-dwarfs that are smaller than the Sun. Um, they orbit each other, and then our host star, 667C, uh, orbits that pair at an average distance of around 230 AU. So the planet itself uh, has a radius about one and a half times that of the Earth, uh, and, and orbits a host star at a distance of less than a tenth of an AU, which gives it a year of around 28 days. However, its, uh, its orbit is highly eccentric, and this brings it very close to the, the star at Periastron. Um, interestingly, or you know, what, what most people have found interesting about this, including me, is that it's considered to fall within the, uh, the classical habitable zone. Um, so, I mean, remember that it's a very small star, so that habitable zone is going to be is going to be very close in. Um, and this is despite much of the radiation falling uh, you know, kind of on the surface in the infrared. Um, however, as we talked about so many times, we have really no information all about its atmosphere, should it even have one. Uh, and, you know, therefore, any estimates about its surface temperature are likely prone to you know, massive errors and uncertainties. 
But as most people have done in the past, they assumed a standard albedo and an Earth-like atmosphere and, and gave it a temperature of like 277 Kelvin or about 4 degrees Celsius. Um, but you know this can be this can be confused by so many so many factors, including you know turning on a carbonate silica cycle and accounting for outgassing and subduction, which could warm things up to ten to fifteen degrees. Um, and that will be coming out in an upcoming paper when I get the corrections done. So anyway, uh, to even further complicate matters, given how close this planet is and its you know it's it's very eccentric orbit, the fact that it's tidally locked, it's going to be you know there's going to be massive tidal heating. Um, on, on the planet and given that we only have a minimum mass you know we found this from from radial velocity um, it's not entirely convincing that it's even terrestrial you know it could also be a, a mini Neptune type planet maybe four earth radii uh, I've heard uh, as the as the minimum um, sorry uh, four earth masses I've heard as the as the minimum in some papers some others go down to about 3.6 or so so I don't know uh, it's, it's, it's a complicated system um, but despite all the ambiguity, there's just, um, I don't know, there's something about this particular world that, that keeps me interested in it. Uh, it's a planet that seems to have, have kind of been with me for a little while. And, it, you know, I keep following its story, the story of its, of its planetary system since its discovery. Um, yeah, and it just keeps cropping up for me uh, in my life at some point. So in, in many ways, I think it's a, it's a good analogy for exoplanet discovery and characterization itself given the storied history of its planetary companions that are here one day and, and gone the next, and then there's some more, and then they're gone. Um, and, of course, all the uncertainties in figuring out exactly what this planet is, you know, whether it's terrestrial or not, with people making claims about it being habitable. So it's a kind of a good analogy for the whole the whole complex procedure. Uh, I'm sure this won't be the last chapter in its tale, so welcome to the misfits of the Exocast family. So, thanks so much for joining us for another instalment of Exocast. Next month, we have an exciting Exocast special, all about the direct imaging of alien planets. And we'll be joined in the studio by special guest Sasha Hinckley from the University of Exeter. So make sure you tune in to that. Until then, you can check out all of our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Until next time, see ya. Bye-bye. Exocast.